From Google search results and Netflix recommendations to self-driving cars and autonomous weapon systems, artificial intelligence technology, AI, is everywhere and becoming increasingly capable. This raises challenging questions about how AI should be regulated. Who's responsible when a self-driving car hits and kills a pedestrian? Should robots be taxed more? Should an AI system be recognised as an inventor for the purposes of patent law? And should the law do more to incentivise the adoption of AI? These questions are at the heart of The Reasonable Robot, a new book by Ryan Abbott, Professor of Law and Health Sciences at the University of Surrey and Professor of Medicine at UCLA. He argues that as AI systems come to surpass human capabilities, the law should be designed so as to incentivise the adoption of AI, where this would result in the most socially beneficial outcome, a regulatory principle he calls AI legal neutrality. You're listening to the Technology and Prose podcast. I'm Nikita Agarwal, and on today's show, I'm joined by Ryan to discuss his new book and the regulation of AI. Ryan, welcome to Technology and Prose. The central argument in your book is that in an age of increasingly capable AI, laws should be designed according to a principle of AI legal neutrality. Can you explain what AI legal neutrality means? Well, the book is primarily concerned with this phenomenon that we are seeing now, and I think we will increasingly see in the coming years, which is that you have machines doing more and more than only people used to do, whether that is driving cars or playing a role in research and development or operating an automatic teller at a McDonald's. You have machines doing human-like sorts of things. But when this happens, there are often different legal rules that apply to behavior by a person or a behavior by a machine. And it is sometimes the case that these different legal rules produce unintended consequences, which may be favoring a machine over a person or vice versa, you know, even where it doesn't make sense to do it. So how would this principle apply, for example, in the context of intellectual property law? Um, say, if we were to look at the patenting of innovations involving AI. So in the case of intellectual property, one of the areas I've been actively researching has been the role of AI in research and development, and in particular in the life sciences, where AI can help discover new potential drug candidates or repurpose existing drugs or do mass screening of chemical compounds. And AI is doing the sorts of things that people used to do together with other people to make them inventors or in some cases just effectively automating the inventive process. But when you do that, it isn't clear that that sort of output can get patent protection because traditionally patent protection has largely depended on the existence of a human inventor. And in some cases, you may no longer have a person who traditionally qualifies as an inventor, in which case it's not clear, would that AI output have patent protection? Who or what would be listed as an inventor and and who would own the thing? And these are important questions as AI increasingly steps into the shoes of human researchers. And And this year, we had some very exciting news from um, Alphabet's DeepMind in its AI being able to outperform human teams um, predicting protein folding structures, which have important implications for drug discovery. And, you know, if an AI was the entity that helped to discover a new treatment for COVID, I think we would be in a really perverse situation if only a human inventor could get a patent on that 
but a company using an AI couldn't get a patent on the same sort of invention. So your your interest is in um, cases where really the invention is by an artificial intelligence system as opposed to a natural person. And the law as it is um, only treats natural people as inventors. Is that correct? Well, th- those are at least the cases that I personally find most interesting. You know, of, of most interest to say businesses are the cases in the middle where AI is helping to augment people in the inventive process. But even there, you know, we've moved increasingly toward a system where invention is done by companies, not people. Invention is often done by teams of people at different companies. Invention is often done using AI. And the lines that, you know, separate inventors from non-inventors and human from machine intelligence, I think, are getting less clear. I've looked at a few cases where people have alleged essentially that no human inventor was involved. And in one of these cases, I'm leading a um, international legal test case where we filed two patent applications on behalf of the owner of an artificial intelligence to own inventive AI output, which have listed the AI as the inventor because there is no person who traditionally qualifies as an inventor. Now, before those legal test cases, there was really no case law on this, pretty much anywhere that I was aware of. You know, there are laws that refer to inventors as natural persons, although not in every jurisdiction. Um, But that was largely, I think, a matter of ensuring that human inventors were recognized for their contributions, even though companies are the entities that own most patents. Those laws weren't designed to deal with, well, what happens if you just don't have a human inventor and can you get protection for that? Historically, academics had thought, well, you don't really need to protect that sort of thing because machines don't care about patents. And that is true. But uh, companies care about patents and companies are the ones that are using, developing and and owning AI systems that are, if properly encouraged, going to result in a lot of social innovation. Why do we need to recognize the AI or the machine as the inventor when the owner and the people who are really responsible for the innovation are the people behind that system. So those are natural people. Can't the patent just be given to them? Well, we listed the AI as the inventor, not as a matter of providing credit to the AI, because the AI certainly doesn't care about credit. But we did it for two reasons. One, to inform the public of how an invention was generated. So we're saying to the public, this is not something that a person came up with. This is something that a machine came up with. And two, and more importantly, it was to protect the rights of of human inventors, because right now, AI really fully automating this is, I mean, not only a controversial um, matter, but, you know, one that is not very common in any case. But, you know, in 10 years, there may be AIs that are commercially available that can routinely invent. And if I could just ask an AI to invent 10,000 things and put my name on all of them as an inventor, it would devalue people who are legitimately engaging in inventive activity, and it would change the meaning of what it is to be an inventor. Uh, And the AI functionally invented in our cases. So that's why we listed it. Um, Wouldn't the patents go to the people behind the AI? Well, yes, of course, the, the AI wouldn't get a patent. A, it couldn't, it doesn't have legal personality, but even if you were to change the law, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. An AI, you know, wouldn't care about a patent, wouldn't be able to exploit it. You know, there are various people who could own the patent and we've selected the owner of the AI as the owner of the patent because we think that's most consistent with both 
property law and incentive theory. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, those are the people that you do want to be encouraging. And you want to be encouraging them to make, build, and use increasingly sophisticated AI that can produce output that is socially valuable. And, and that's what allowing patent protection for these sorts of outputs would do. And so what about these cases that you filed? Have you had any outcome yet? Where are they heading? Oh, we, we have had some outcome. And in fact, I, there's been a lot more interest in the, in the case studies than I would have expected. I've been writing about these academically, you know, or about this phenomenon for several years before the case studies. And, and people used to think, you know, or at least say it was kind of interesting. But but when it's a case study, people really enjoy talking about it. So we've given patent lawyers something sexy to talk about, which is rare. Uh, and, and so the patent bar is, is pretty happy about that. We, we filed the cases in 2018, and we filed them in the UK and Europe first, because those jurisdictions, without getting into inventorship, will examine an application on their merits. And we filed two applications, one for a blinking light that could attract human attention and one for a beverage container based on fractal geometry like a snail shell. Uh, and both applications were effective, you know, b- before the date of publication as much as they could were found to be patentable. So new, non-obvious and useful. So these are, you know, in the ordinary course of things, if I just stuck my name on those two applications, I'd have patents by now. But then we corrected the inventorship and said there wasn't a person who was an inventor. This was done by a machine. And the applications have now been rejected. We filed them in about a dozen jurisdictions. So the U.S., Canada, India, China, Japan, South Korea. I don't mean to give you a whole long list, but a whole bunch of jurisdictions. And in most of them, they're pending. But um, it was rejected by the U.K. IPO, which um, is now holding a consultation on whether IP law is fit for purpose in light of advances in AI and is referencing the case. Uh, That case, actually, we had a high court decision that rejected it on the basis kind of of the way the Patents Act was written and whether or not the rights would first have to vest in a, in a human inventor before moving to a company or, or, or a patent applicant. But, you know, we think that, well, regardless of whether or not we can shoehorn this sort of phenomenon into the way English law is currently written, you know, it probably makes more sense for us to take a step back and think about what's going on and what we want patent law to achieve and, and maybe changing the law. That case was actually just accepted for an appeal um, or, or the you know m- motion to appeal was accepted by the Court of Appeals. So we will hopefully at some point this year have a hearing in the Court of Appeals. That's amazing. Um, so you mentioned also that that you filed cases in a bunch of other jurisdictions. Um, are you expecting a different outcome, like maybe because they have a different approach to invent invention and recognizing the rights of inventors? I, I think there will be a couple different outcomes for a couple different reasons. I mean, not all countries require an inventor to be a natural person or to list an inventor in an application. So, for example, Israel does not require you to list an inventor in a filed application. Um, we did in Israel, but we could have not listed that and just had a patent granted. Um, a couple member states of the European Patent Office or the European Patent Convention um, have reported Cyprus and Monaco. They don't require inventors to be natural people. You know, so it may be that some jurisdictions come out differently on this. And you know, India, for example, is a little slower at getting around to patents, but they have kind of very flexible laws built around 
you know, entities, you know, which can be legally recognized. I think, though, that some jurisdictions, you know, opinions are shifting quickly in this space. You know, after kind of not talking about it for a long time, WIPO, the UK IPO, and the US, I, US Patent and Trademark Office have just, you know, launched these public discussions on AI and IP. I, I think that some jurisdictions, particularly ones that make AI a part of their industrial strategy, will realize the importance to protecting this sort of output and may have legislative fixes. You know, getting getting this phenomenon shoehorned into laws that clearly weren't designed with this in mind is a tall order. Uh, you know, but part of the outcome might be legislative changes at the end of the day. So I want to... Um shift a little to talk about the application of um, or the potential for AI legal neutrality in another domain and look at the example of self-driving cars. So in 2018, an Uber self-driving car ran over Elaine Hertzberg, who was crossing the street one night in Tempe, Arizona. Um, And a court has now charged the safety driver of that Uber on one count of negligent homicide, and she'll stand trial in um, February. But, but no charges, no criminal charges have been brought against Uber. So can you explain how this case has been construed and conceived under existing liability law and what legal neutrality would have done differently? Sure. Well, just to take a, a step back on the self-driving car bit, right? So just as, I, as AI is stepping into the shoes of human researchers, AI is stepping into the shoes of, of all sorts of activities that can cause harm and self-driving cars i think are one of the best examples of this because many experts are predicting they're going to be widely available this decade and they are doing something really very similar to what a person's doing you may be getting into an uber that drives you around by itself rather than uber drives you around with a person um you know and and there's a lot of considerations as you have machines stepping into these roles and one of which you know and one of which tort law is particularly interested in is promoting safety so is it going to be safer with a human driver behind an uber or a self-driving car and and i think the answer is pretty clear to me that the uber if it's not safer now is going to be much safer you know, human error causes 94% of all accidents. Um, you know, we had this one in Arizona and, you know, the governor shut down the Uber program in the state, but more people than that are dying from human accidents every day. And you don't get anywhere near that level of, of response or interested in. So we hold them to a very different standard and not just politically or optically, but legally. So if a human driver causes an accident, we ask usually, you know, was that a negligent act? So we say, would a reasonable driver have caused that accident? And if the answer is yes, we don't hold them liable. If the answer is no, then we do. But with something like a self-driving car, we have a whole different legal standard, which is in the US generally under strict product liability. And we ask whether, leaving aside some advertising issues, whether there was a defect in the product. And if so, did it cause an accident regardless of reasonable care? right? So it is strictly liable for harms it causes. I think this isn't good to have these two different technologies judged on different standards if they are either now or will be in the future interchangeable, because it means that one has a higher standard of liability and we are discouraged from using it. And that is a problem if it ends up being a safer technology. So self-driving cars, which are held to a higher standard of liability, increases the cost of using them and discourages their adoption. 
but you would want the opposite to be the case. You would want to encourage their adoption if they're safer than a human being. Uh, and I think they will be soon. And to the extent that they aren't, they would still be liable, you know, if we held them to the same standard, namely a negligence standard, if we just asked, you know, when a car causes an accident, you know, would a reasonable human driver have caused that accident? Uh, we will still capture cases where a self-driving car underperforms versus a person, uh, but we would not be holding it to a higher liability standard and discouraging its adoption. You know, that would also be a good thing to do because strict liability cases may require that we understand why a car did something to show that there was a design defect. But for all but the most catastrophic sorts of accidents, that sort of investigation is going to be very time consuming, expensive and difficult, you know, including with issues around trade secrets and transparency. And so it's a far simpler question to say, did a self-driving car run a red light? And was that reasonable than to get into why a self-driving car ran a red light? So I think that a legally neutral standard would simply apply what a reasonable driver have caused this accident and acted in this way, regardless of what's doing it. Um, now, a couple thoughts on that, you know, so in this particular case, well, this particular case was interesting because it wasn't exactly a self-driving car stepping into the shoes of a person, although it, it was, you know, it is probably going to be the case for a long time that, that we have people and machines working together. And this introduces all sorts of new and interesting dynamics because the human safety driver was supposed to have her hands on the wheel and be alert at all times and clearly could have prevented the accident. You know, but when someone in a self-driving car is driven around long enough each day, their attention starts to wander and it is very difficult to get someone to be constantly available and alert when, you know, they are in a system designed to get them to be tuned out. It, this particular driver was watching, you know, the voice on her phone. So she was kind of not doing too well for someone being paid to be a safety driver in an Uber. So she is liable. But, you know, the car clearly was designed to prevent this sort of thing, though it was in testing. And so, you know, at a more mature stage in this technology, I think where you have a mix of human and machine activity, the way you may have an invention, both of them might be liable. Both of them might be liable in negligence, you know, to the percentage of their wrongdoing or jointly and severally. And that is more or less how we treat accidents caused by more than one person now. What's interesting to me is um, kind of the exoneration of Uber um, and then the sort of self-driving system or technology from any blame. Can you kind of just unpack a little bit how all of the all of the kind of um, liability is falling on that safety driver and why none is being attributed to uh, the technology. Couldn't we argue that actually the technology should have been better and it should have automatically stopped? Well, in, in fairness, I haven't looked at that case in a little bit and what's going on. So, you know, you would have both potential criminal and potential civil liability. And I, I suspect that most of the accidents caused by or involving safe driving cars have gotten paid out very quickly on the civil liability front. You know, regardless of necessarily how culpable, if that's the right word to use, the systems have been, there is so much, you know, financial importance and benefit to using these systems. I think it's going to be a lot easier for victims to get paid out. 
Um, you know, the cars will have records of the activities taken. Sensors will be recording accidents. It'll be easier to determine fault. And when a self-driving car is at fault, you know, its manufacturer, which will be the liable party, will have adequate assets to satisfy judgments, which is also a real problem when human drivers who are underinsured um, or uninsured or, you know, flee the scene of things are, are hard to recover from. So I, I think it was my vague recollection that there may have been a financial settlement in that case from Uber and I think this may also have been kind of a joint venture. So there are some more kind of where there are multiple pliers, suppliers, in, uh, sorry, where there are multiple suppliers in a manufacturing chain, you know, they may also have liability issues amongst themselves. To the extent a criminal trial is going forward with, you know, a level of carelessness that has reached criminal culpability, I think, you know, a jury could find that someone who was paid to be a safety driver to prevent exactly this sort of thing from happening, watching a movie on her cell phone when someone was killed was at a level of criminal negligence um, or recklessness. And I, a, a, a vehicle is, well, certainly the self-driving car itself wouldn't be held criminally liable for something, although there is a chapter in the book about that. But you can't have criminal liability for companies in the U.S. So, Uber could be held criminally culpable if they had designed a, you know, cr you know, a recklessly designed self-driving car, which they let out on the market. I think that was very unlikely to be the case here, given that the car was not, you know, being used commercially. It was in testing and they did have a safety driver available to be taking over and, and preventing this. And this was an unfortunate, but I think ultimately kind of not at the level of a criminal wrong by a company like Uber in this case. So, so I wonder then kind of what is the sort of implications of what you describe as the reasonable robot standard, um, which and, and sort of taking the kind of utilitarian argument that we want to minimize the number of um, road deaths. Um, we should therefore incentivize safer cars and the safer car will probably be a self-driving one. Um, does this lead to a future in which basically humans shouldn't drive like we, we will not be driving in a future not so far from now i i think well so my proposal being that we hold both a machine and a person to the standard of a reasonable person is actually i think of somewhat less importance with getting self-driving cars on the road for two reasons one aside from safety there's so many clear financial benefits for doing this that i think it will just happen and two, because self-driving cars are going to become much safer than people, regardless of tort liability, because the technology will keep improving, whatever legal standard you hold them to, because they will cause so many fewer accidents, there is likely to be less liability with them. I think the more important implication of this legal rule is that when self-driving cars are a standard way of getting around, when they're widely available and accessible, um, not just that, that people should be held to the standard of machines, but or, or the machine should be held to the standard of people, but that people should be held to the standard of machines. So if, you know, you want to drive instead of having your self-driving Tesla take you, you know, to the office for the day and you cause an accident, well, if it's an accident that a self-driving car wouldn't have caused, you should be liable for it. Does that mean we won't have people on the road? No, although that is one Thing we could think about. Elon Musk has suggested, for example, that we shouldn't have human drivers when Teslas get safe enough. Uh, you know, if it saves, 
in the UK, 3,000 lives a year. That seems like a pretty good reason to get rid of human drivers. On the other hand, you know, one would restrict the sorts of activities people can engage in and limit freedom and autonomy. And I think that is not an insignificant cost either. What I like about my proposal is essentially, well, it lets you drive if you want to drive, but it basically says, look, if you cause an accident that you know we didn't need to have, the cost of it's going to be on you because pretty much any accident you cause will be negligent compared to a self-driving car. And so it internalizes the risk of going out and causing an accident on you rather than someone who stepped in front of your car and got hurt through no fault of their own. Um, so I'm not for keeping human drivers off the road, but I am for having liability standards that promote safer technologies and that internalize the cost of accidents that you cause on yourself. So that's an interesting suggestion. Um, I'm wondering kind of what the distributional consequences of it would be. Would it, it seem to suggest that maybe only the wealthy could then be drivers because it would cost more to be a human driver. No, and, and that's a good point. You know, there, there's a fine line here. We, we don't expect everyone to go out and buy the newest model of safest car, even though it would save lives, you know, because that isn't feasible and it would have unfortunate distributional consequences. On the other hand, we keep a lot of people off the road through MOT tests and making sure that cars have, you know, working things like brakes. And at what point does a self-driving car become less like the newest Lamborghini and more like having a working set of brakes on your car? Well, I, I think, you know, it's a case-by-case -case sort of thing, but that basically it is where, you know, the cost, you know, where these technologies are widely available and where the costs of automating are practicable. And, you know, I think that is at some level going to cut some people off at the bottom. Um, but, you know... We, we have to have working brakes on cars. And not just on cars. I think cars are a, a good example for looking at this because of the neat one-to-one -one way in which cars may replace people, leaving aside things like infrastructure development and self-driving fleets of cars and safety benefits that come when we get mass automation on the road. But but AI is and will be stepping into shoes in a whole lot of other settings. And I think one of the interesting ways we see this is in medicine, where you have a lot of companies working on diagnostic AIs that can work as, um, you know, viewing images or looking at slides in a lab and helping to diagnose things. And a number of these companies are claiming their AI is better than human doctors, right? Not, of course, that they are like a human doctor, but at this one or two things that they do, they're better than human doctors. And so, you know, it may be in 10 or 20 years, you go to see a surgeon and they say, well, I can, you know, remove your cancer, but I have to let you know that this Da Vinci robot does it in half the time with fewer side effects, faster recovery and a better success rate. Who do you want to operate on you? I think it would be unfortunate, you know, that people would probably at that stage prefer a human doctor out of bias if, you know, a machine was definitely doing a better job of it. And I think a human doctor shouldn't be doing those sorts of tasks if an AI was doing a significantly better job. Um, in fact, in the case of medicine, I think it would be unethical to have a doctor doing a surgery like that or reading a radiograph or reading a slide. Uh, if you did have a AI that consistently outperformed the human doctor. You already have quite sophisticated computing and machinery used in medicine. Is it not already expected that a doctor should use the latest available technology 
and the standard of reasonableness takes into account that technology, or is that not the case? I think actually in medicine, the opposite tends to be the case that the standard of care tends to be based on custom. And it is kind of uniquely the case that we ask for negligence whether what a physician is doing has fallen beneath the standard of other physicians. We don't require physicians to adopt the newest and greatest technology. And in fact, adopting the newest and greatest technology in medicine can be a liability risk when you're doing something that isn't the standard of care. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, these technologies are developing very quickly. I don't think that we have a bunch of technologies that are actually commercially doing this on a widespread level right now, or, or really none of them. But I do think that we are going to see this in the 2020s. Um, and that it's really going to change the practice of medicine in ways that I think ultimately will benefit patients. So, I mean, it raises sort of questions about what is the the big kind of change when it comes to AI? Is this sort of a, an exceptional case? Is it just a progression along a continuum um, with existing technologically assisted medicine? Um, and so what do, what do you think? Do you think that AI is um, is inherently different, inherently special in some ways that requires a wholly different approach to the to the law and to regulation? Well, no, and, and that's a great question and something that I think people who are active in this area, you know, discuss is this kind of just like the Internet, like, you know, or computer software, say in the IP case. I, I definitely think that AI is an exceptional technology. You know, the law is not unaccustomed to dealing with technological change and having to adapt to it. And, you know, people are already hard at work coming up with new principles of AI regulation or suggesting new regulatory frameworks. I think what makes AI exceptional and particularly interesting from a legal theory perspective is the fact that it automates activities that people used to do. So instead of having new technological means of doing things, that instead of having a person do something at all, you've got a machine doing it. And I think that that is largely not something that the law has previously accommodated and something that we're going to have to think very carefully about as AI, you know, not only starts doing this stuff in kind of interesting fringe ways, but, you know, we hear about self-driving cars. We see them sometimes being tested, but there may be a point at which they are suddenly cheap and available in which now they're everywhere and which we haven't really come to terms with. Absolutely. And, and so how do so you, so again, this overriding principle um, that you that you put forward in the book is one of AI legal neutrality. But as you mentioned, there have been many different principles proposed and a lot of discussion around how to regulate AI, how to ensure AI is developed for socially good purposes. And I'm wondering how AI legal neutrality fits into this sort of broader um, landscape, right? So is, is AI legal neutrality a sort of Grundnorm um, and those others are kind of subsidiary to it? Or could there be trade-offs where, I don't know, transparency or accountability take precedence over AI legal neutrality? Oh, I, I, I think the latter. You know, it is a general principle of regulation. And, you know, people talk about AI regulation and I think fail to understand that AI really is regulated right now. It is just regulated according to rules that weren't designed with AI in mind. So, for example, this legal test case is subject to a whole bunch of laws about AI-generated invention that were written decades ago when no one was thinking about it, right? So it isn't that there aren't laws. It's that the laws, you know, maybe aren't fit for purpose or at least aren't ideal to help us generate the most benefit possible from it. And 
you know, all of these principles, if you start at a principles level and then kind of work into frameworks, but, you know, more detailed regulatory frameworks, because every area of practice is different and you can't just, you know, make an AI a person, you know, like a company and just say, oh, that'll solve everything. It really, I think, gets more complicated. But to have these principles in mind for for developing more nuanced regulatory frameworks, you know, these other principles that have been proposed, things like accountability and transparency and explainability are, are really just that principles. And it, it really matters on a case-by-case basis. So for example, let's say that I had an AI that was completely effective at detecting cancer, but couldn't tell me how it worked because it was a phenomenally complex neural network and the rules that it used weren't intelligible by a person. You know, I think that is a case in which explainability is not that important because what I'm really concerned about is outcomes and I have a clear yes or no outcome. Is there a cancer or isn't there? You know, in other areas of practice, um, explainability is a lot more important. So, for example, if an AI is helping to make bail decisions for someone, whether or not to let them out of out of jail while they're awaiting a trial. And I think one of the reasons for that is it's not so clear that that there is a right outcome in that case or what the right outcome is. You know, you wouldn't want an AI just saying bail or no bail, you know, and and not just because there's a risk of it behaving in a biased sort of way, but that we want to understand, you know, the criteria on which AI are making decisions. And those are criteria which we change from time to time based on social values. So in that regard, do you do you think there is room for not just this kind of principles-based regulation, but also some kind of hard constraints on what AI should be re- able to do or permitted to do? Um, and I think in the book you you highlight uh, military applications and judicial applications as areas that are more sensitive. Um, you know, is is there is there an argument for banning? Um, AI or AI that is unassisted by a human, for example, in a defense system or offensive weapon system? Well, it's an interesting question. And certainly a lot of, a lot of interest in, you know, the, the killer robot ban. Um, and, and these have been political issues that I think have been explored kind of more than some other ones. I, I'm still thinking about that, but I'm not quite as pessimistic as some people on on the use of AI in these systems. You know, AI systems definitely can have bias and problems, and those are, you know, issues that have now been, I think, fairly well established in the literature and which need to be resolved. But I, I think this kind of wholesale objection to having robots in these roles is one that is, again, kind of... Uh, biased against machines without adequate evidence, you know, of a reason to do so. So human, you know, people are concerned about machine bias or racial bias and criminal decision making, but human judges have been racially biased in criminal decision making for a long time. And it is very difficult to detect and prevent that sort of bias because, you know, a human decision maker, if they are racially biased, is very unlikely to admit to that and you know you can tell them they're not allowed to make decisions like this but if it's an unconscious bias then they don't even realize they're doing it you know i think machines will prove to be more transparent and explainable than human judges and that you know as we detect these biases they are biases that we are much more easily able to correct for or correct for kind of proxy variables for them um so 
you know, we have a long way to go before we would have any kind of robot judge for anything other than maybe a small claims matter. But um, I, I don't know that I fundamentally agree that they should always be prohibited from certain areas. You know, and, and similarly with military applications, there's a lot of risk about taking a person out of the loop with a military robot. You know, but on the other hand, having military robots may you know, reduce casualties as robots are less concerned about their own existence or are not concerned about their own existence, you know, adhere to rules of war, um, are unlike, you know, just as people exercise common sense and goodness, sometimes they don't, and robots are unlikely to act independently for good or ill. Um, so I'm not proposing we have killer robots, but I, I do think they are, you know, concerns we need to explore further. So in the conversation on AI and its impact on society, uh, one issue that's received a lot of attention and uh, raises a lot of concern is its implications for um, employment um, and the prospect of technological unemployment. Um, So in in the book, you have a very interesting chapter that uh, talks about this, um, but you approach it um, in what I think is quite a novel or less uh, less theorized um, uh, way, and that's to think about the implications for taxation, revenue, and uh, fiscal solvency. Can you unpack um, sort of your your key ideas here? So one of the things you propose is a federal automation tax. How would that work? Sure. Well, again, um, so we we once more see that machines are doing human like sorts of things, and I think you know a fun place to see that is you go into McDonald's and you have an automatic teller that is there doing the same sort of thing a person would do. And again, we have different legal regimes coming to bear on whether a person or machine is doing something, and that applies in the case of tax. So for example, if McDonald's hires a worker, they have to pay national insurance contributions on top of that worker. And so essentially, our tax policies are encouraging or incentivizing automation, even where it may not be more efficient, just so they can save on taxes. So if an automatic teller and a person are basically just as good, and and granted those are complex things to compare, but McDonald's would want to automate because they won't have to pay these extra taxes. Beyond national insurance contributions, it gets a bit more complicated, and it's in the book if anyone feels like reading a bunch about tax law, uh, which is, you know, second to patent law in terms of sexiness as legal topics go. But, um, you know, you can accelerate deductions for certain sorts of automation equipment or software, and there are indirect taxes that employers bear on employees' behalfs. You know, the, the gist of this is that just as essentially our tort laws and our IP laws discourage AI behavior, our tax laws encourage AI behavior, and in, in the same way, I really think the law should be neither encouraging nor discouraging it, you know, per se, but helping businesses and individuals to use whatever technology where a person is more appropriate. So what I see, you know, and this has a couple negative outcomes. So not only are we encouraging people to automate, even where it may not be better, um, you know, but we are also reducing tax revenue because most tax revenue comes in one way or another from labor revenue. In the U.S., for example, we get about half of our federal revenue from federal income taxes, which are largely labor-based, about 35% from payroll taxes, and less than 10% from taxes on companies. And so if you have McDonald's get rid of a human worker for a robot, 
that may or may not make McDonald's more profitable. But even if it does, a much smaller amount of that is remitted as tax revenue than if you were paying a person. So at the same time we are encouraging businesses to automate and lay people off, we are reducing our tax revenue. And that's a real problem if the solution to technological unemployment is retraining people in new job types and providing more social support while they transition. And should we ever get to a future where we have mass unemployment because there's only so much that a person can do and there are no longer the same sorts of limits for AI, uh, you would want to be thinking about things like a universal basic income, but it will be hard to do that if we don't have revenue for it. So I think we should have a neutral tax system between people and machines. And Bill Gates in 2017 you know, suggested we could have a robot tax. And you could have a robot tax you know, by, say, taxing automation like that teller at McDonald's, but it would be a difficult thing to do. You know, Robots may not automate one-to-one -one with people. You'd have a hard time defining what a robot is. There'd be a lot of gamesmanship. Um, there'd be a lot of attempts at tax avoidance. There'd be a lot of administrative burden. I don't think a direct tax would be most efficient. What I think we should do is have a level playing field for people or machines. And one way to do that would be getting rid of some labor taxes like um, payroll taxes in the US or national insurance contributions in the UK. And that would make it so businesses were less encouraged to automate. And when they did automate, we would be less at risk for reduced tax revenue. Now, you'd have to make that revenue up from somewhere. And so I think effectively a robot tax could be increased taxes on capital. You know, there's a variety of ways to do that. But for example, increasing company taxes to be in line with those of individuals in the U.S., and that this would have a tax system that is agnostic to how people engage in commercially useful activity. The existing tax system, at least in the US, UK, and in many jurisdictions, already has a bias in favor of capital, right? So labor is taxed more than capital, and we it's generally thought that this is a regressive uh, approach to taxation, and you know that's leaving aside other taxes. Um, so what you're arguing is kind of for a broad, it's a bigger argument about um, correcting that bias between capital and labor uh, more generally, um, because sort of AI and particularly embodied AI robotics would be treated as capital. Is that broadly accurate? Yeah. And, you know, I think you mentioned distributional effects, too. Those weren't my primary concern with those section, but I do think they work in the right direction here and, and pretty much everywhere with AI legal neutrality that I can think of. You know, AI is going to generate a lot of wealth and it is likely to be narrowly concentrated and it is likely to come at the expense of vulnerable populations. And as there is a vein of critical scholarship about the extent to which we favor taxes on labor over taxes on capital, which again, tend to be regressive, um, you know, this provides more impetus for finally changing that system. Right. But also does it in a way where you will have improved efficiency of both taxes and economic activity without all of the same distortive effects. So it both you know, promotes businesses and workers to be more efficient and it will result in distributional benefits um, and sharing the value that comes out of AI. So the idea would be to eliminate kind of inefficient automation. So you're arguing that where automation is incentivized by a sort of tax minimization strategy, that's not socially beneficial. And we would eliminate that. 
However, that would still allow for automation that is genuinely efficient and it results in productivity gains, right? Yeah, I like the way you said that better than the way I said it. I, I guess what I'm going where I'm going with that is to say, well, if I, I don't know how much the tax system shapes people's incentives to automate, but assuming then you then neutralize that effect, you would probably still have automation for productivity. And so you would still have many people out of jobs, many people who need to be retrained. So is that future we're looking at, regardless of what the tax system really looks like? I think that's right. I think, um, right. So if we're getting into the longer term here, you know, the scholarship on the future of work is pretty sharply divided. You know, on the one hand, it's very clear AI is going to put a bunch of people out of work. You know, on the other hand, it may well be the case that in the long term, you have decreased unemployment because these jobs that go away, uh, all sorts of new jobs spring up and there aren't as many people put out of work as we feared. And ultimately, we get long term gains. You know, that's been the history of automation, you know, from the first through the third industrial revolution. You know, it used to be that about 40% of the workforce was in agriculture, and now it's about 3%, and we don't have 37% unemployment. We have much more productive workers in agriculture, and, you know, people have gone on to do all sorts of interesting things. If that happens, then the benefits of a more neutral tax system are, you know, it helps with the transition, it helps with funding, and it helps the government provide benefits to people while they're unemployed, and it helps to train people in new jobs, and ultimately there's value realization across the board. But if AI does have one of these, you know, singularity or intelligence explosion moments, if, you know, if everything is like a self-driving car, where there's really nothing a person can do that an AI can't do faster, cheaper, and better, then yes, the taxes really don't matter. The financial benefits of automating are so huge that people will just automate one way or the other. And you know, there may be some jobs that we save for people like being soldiers and being judges, but the world can only accommodate so many judges and soldiers. Now, some people think that this is kind of a dystopia where you know Jeff Bezos has all the money in the world and everyone else is kind of and it's like the purge, you know, I think more likely as we get to a space like that, you know, taxes, there would be much more value creation, there would be much more wealth. Um, there would have to be something like a universal basic income to make sure that we were all sharing in the benefits of it. And, and people would be finding new things to do with their day other than working for Jeff Bezos. And, you know, that may be difficult in some senses because people derive a lot of their meaning from their professional activities, but I think that will just get people to have to shift more to um, self-improvement or enjoying personal relationships or just playing Fortnite and virtual reality. So the future will be one of much leisure, which doesn't sound too terrible. Ryan, thank you so much for joining Technology in Prose. It's been great chatting to you. Oh, it was my pleasure and thanks so much for having me. That was Ryan Abbott, author of The Reasonable Robot. On the next episode, I'll be joined by Ben Green to discuss his latest book, The Smart Enough City. Most fundamentally, we need to talk about the, the technology sector and the way that they are pitching these broad visions of, of smart cities. I don't think that it really has a, has a meaning beyond something that was, that was created sort of as a marketing term. Thank you for listening. Until next time.